Indie. What's up, Indie? Indie News Network. Indie. I get news from Independent Left. Independent Left.News. Independent Left.News. Indie Left Media. Independent Left News. Indie Left. Independent Left News. Independent Left Media. Indie Media. Indie Left. Indie. 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 Indie Left News. Indie Left. Hi, Indie. Indie Left News. Subscribe to Indie News Network. We're world building. Your your way of assisting, I feel like, is really cool. Independentleft.news. Independentleftnews. I'm a huge fan. He created INN. The founder of uh, Independent News Network. Indie is the founder of Indie News Network. Thank you, Independentleft.news. A huge thank you and shout out to Indie Left. Everyone, check out Indie Left News. Hey, Indie Left. Independentleft.news. Indie. Indie. Hi, Indie. Indie Left. Indie Left News. Indie News. Independent Media. Independent Left News has done an amazing job. God, that makes me smile every time I see it. Hi, everybody. Hi, everybody. What's up, fam? What's up, fam? It Hi, is... everybody. Hi, everybody. It's Sunday night. It's 10 o'clock, and we're doing a little Harry Carry. Jimmy, how are you, Jimmy Sunderland? Welcome. What? That's a... Doing some funny segments over there and some good stuff. Uh, good good new show. Um, wow. Uh, we got a couple. We got 20-some odd people. This is great. How did we miss that? How did we miss that? Um, holy mackerel. What's happening, dude? I got Reef next to me. Not much, man. It's indie. Yeah, um, I made soup. I made soup. And you're very proud of your soup. I was hungry soup. and I made soup. You're very I proud am, of your dude. soup. And I'm very I proud of like, you. I was like, I was hungry and I wanted uh, something warm and soup. And so I made soup. I'm very proud of you. What? Um, Thank yeah. you. Yeah. So I'm um, just chicken proud. and rice is delicious. Good. People need to know the news. I was People in Vegas this week. I got to travel. I got to meet Pasta and Steve. Holy crap. It's been a wild week. Um, we were out I thought late. what happens there stays there. Well, I, I did stay there. I just told said who I met. I didn't say what happened. But, <laughs> I did but that's say, what happened. That's what happened. So, you met people. That's anyway, what happened. Yes, I actually met my first lefty friends in like two and a half years. It was incredible. And shout out to them. And it was awesome. I had such a good time with them. Um, anyway. Welcome, everybody. It's Sunday night. It's How Do We Miss That? So welcome, everybody, to How Do We Miss That? We are a show and podcast streaming live on Rockfin, YouTube, Twitch, Rumble, Facebook, Twitter, Odyssey, Telegram. Wow, I got through that fast. Sunday nights, 10 o'clock Eastern, 7 p.m. Pacific, is for my friends out on the West Coast in Vegas. Available on all your podcast platforms, though I know I'm a couple of weeks behind, and I got to get that up to speed, and we'll put tonight's up there, too, with the other with the last two. It's co-hosted by me. I'm Indy. You can see on the microphones, but for everyone on the podcast, I'm Indy. I'm the founder and editor of Independent Left News and IndieMedia.today, which is our Substack. And then I got this guy sitting next to me, and he's Reef Breland. He's the technical director for INN. He's the host of Reefer After Dark and the host of INN News. And uh, we are both the founding members of Indie News Network, a collaborative family of 23 independent content creators, the largest independent network on the internet uh as far as i know uh all the study all the stories that you're going to see tonight were featured in independentleft.news or indieleft.news between sunday and friday this week it is totally impossible to keep up with this crazy fire hose of all this developing news and in uh, all week long but these are just like four, four four stories with six articles out of the hundreds that i could find uh please make sure share this link looks like we got about 20 some 20 some odd people we're live on rockfin again uh, go to rockfan.com slash indie uh, the ind left news and you can find us over there 
Uh, it's ad-free. I love that because it's ad-free. If you don't have YouTube Premium, I hear they've, they're ramping up the ads. No ads over on the Rockfin. There is a premium thing for $9.99. Most of the... Um, most of the videos on the platform are actually free. A few of them are premium. You get all the premium for the ten for the nine ninety nine a month that you spend for one channel. It's it's kind of a great deal. Uh, even if you do get premium, even if not, you're going to get access to most of the content. Anyway, please again make sure share the link, like stream, subscribe to our channels on all the platforms where you watch and listen. Thank you so much to our volunteers. You got Big Mad Crab who made our thumbnail, and we'll show that in a minute. We got Jimmy Sunderland, who made that amazing trailer that I just, it makes me smile every time I hear it and see it. And congratulations to J.B. Font. You saw J.B. Font in the trailer. J.B. became a great uncle today. Um, so I uh, saw some and of the pictures. And he made it 2K. And, and he made it 2K. Shout out to, to our brother, J.B. Trying to get him to 3K. Trying to get J.B. to, to 10K. You can, uh, thank you so much to Phantom mm -hmm. Phanto for all the video editing clips. He does great work on that. Um, Fred Edward over on the Twitters and the Facebook and resident skeptic, Chris Gilman over on Instagram and over on Twitter as well. And yeah, uh, even Matt Cusick, we got so many people. Willie Bragg has been helping out and, and he did some nice shout outs for INN this week. So thank you so much to Willie. We appreciate that. Um, again, the podcast in this stream is available for free to download on all your flavor, your favorite platforms. That's anchor.fm slash independent left news. You got to spell that all out. Again, it's on Apple, Amazon, Google, Spotify. Just search for How Did We Miss That? Subscribe, and you can leave us a five-star rating anywhere. That'd be really cool. Oh, I guess I see we got Care Bear here. We got Warren here, Extra Booyah, Kelly. Thank you to our Patreons. By the way, patreon.com slash news if you want to subscribe monthly and support our work that we're doing both with the shows. Uh, we got Friends of Indie Left. We're doing the Substack almost every day. We've got the daily newsletter. There's so much going on. I can't even. And then you've got the whole network stuff on, to, on top of all that. Anthony Malecki, welcome, brother. Nikki, Radical Leftist Agenda. And now Nikki Chikai. I guess she's she's changed it over to. Um, I, I think that's how you're supposed to say that, right? Nikki Chikai. I Eric guess. T, Eric T. Red, we got all our patrons. I'm sure Les Bones is, is in there somewhere. Lewis, Yipper99, thank you, everybody. Gamer Gotcha for life. So good to see you. I saw you. We've been seeing each other in every stream lately. Velvet Trance, welcome. That's a new name I haven't seen before. Uh, maybe last spooky. week. Spooky. Spoopy. Spooky. Oh, that's Spoopy. It's oh, spoopy. Right. Spoopy. Okay. And Rick Solis, how you doing, bro? Good to see you. I'm guessing Joe's going to be along sometime. Yeah, JB, nine pounds, eleven ounces. That's a that's a monster. I my think son, that's Nichico. I think is how you do that. Anyway, my, my, my son was nine pounds, and he's got a monstrous sized dome. So baby let Jesus, me tell you, yeah, they, well, monster sized dome. Okay, baby, baby something. So, uh, yeah, okay, we're eight minutes in. Let's let's get to actually some stories here. All right, check it out. Oh. Nine pound, ten ounce. Warren, baby see, I've got Warren. Chat. What's up, man? Look at look at what Warren did. See, that's not so bad actually. What do you what do you what do you Isn't think nice? of that? What do you think of that chat? Um, that's a little that, that's a little different. I, or maybe I did that last time. I don't remember. Anyway, um, we're sharing restream chats, so therefore, when Warren changes the chat, I have to change it back if I want to, and I forgot to. So we're all good anyway. So we got our thumbnail again that Big Mad Crab made. Shout out to Crab for that. And we've got our toxic tap water. That's the last thing we're going to get to. Uh, rampant federal corruption. We've got our activists that we're going to talk about first, and then the rail workers. So let's get into it. First story. Talking about the acquittal of activists. Now, I've asked a couple people, have you heard about what happened with the Smithfield 
activists and the and them being acquitted and everyone i heard said no mm -hmm. so i'm like well that sounds like a story for how do we miss that so the glove must have fit <laughs> acquittal of activists who saved didn't fit dying piglets from smithfield sets a right to rescue precedent well you know i know you're a huge animal lover and mm -hmm. uh right to rescue i think is near and dear to a lot of activist hearts and these are the two guys for direct action uh that, that did this and so they literally defended themselves and you'll hear the story it's really heartwarming um i want you to acquit us as a matter of conscience the defendant said there's a big difference between stealing and rescue and opponents of factory farms again in cruelty celebrated saturday night last saturday night when jurors acquitted two activists who are each facing up to five and a half years in prison on felony burglary and, and theft charges stemming from the 2017 removal of a pair of sick piglets from a Smithfield Foods factory farm in Utah. How about that? The not guilty verdict, a landmark decision establishing the legal right to rescue distressed animals in need of care, is the culmination of more than five-year pursuit that multiple agencies, including the FBI and the Utah Attorney General's office. Okay, um, that's crazy. Report rescuing animals is not a crime. And again, shout out to Kenny Stancil, Common Dreams, an Indie Media Award winner, uh, award honoree. And uh, we really appreciate the work that Common Dreams does. As Bolot, Bolotnikova, uh, Bolotnikova, I'm butchering her name, I'm sure. Okay, this person for The Intercept. The case began after the activists published undercover footage revealing gruesome conditions at Smithfield, the nation's largest pork producer, which is in violation of Utah's 2012 ag-gag law criminalizing the collection of evidence of animal abuse and other illegal activities on factory farms. Wait, it's illegal to collect evidence about this, even if it's happening, even if it's a crime. Yes, that's the truth. Fuck? Yep. What? Yeah, I need that Jimmy sound. Um, <clears throat> yep. Wayne, Wayne Suing and Paul Pick Picklesimer, and I, that's, that's a real name, Picklesimer. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. We cannot just blow past a pig story with pickle Picklesimer. Like, he's one of the rescuers, You know, all we man. need is, like, cheddar right. now, you know? He's, he's one of the heroes from Direct Action Everywhere. Okay, he they rescued <sighs> two dangerously underweight piglets, whom they named Lily and Lizzie, from Circle Four Farms in Beaver County in March 2017. The men took the piglets yeah. to receive the emergency to receive emergency veterinary care, and then transported them to an animal sanctuary in Colorado. How nice! Would would Lizzie be thin Lizzie in this case, as they're under underweight? Well, once once they what? bulked her up, they would call her Lizzo, wouldn't they? Oh, murr, murr, murr. oh, 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 that's even worse. Sorry, guys. I thought mine was bad. Sorry, guys. I, I thought I, mine was bad. I got dad jokes, all right? So cheers erupted <laughs> in the courtroom on Saturday when, when Judge Jeffrey Wilcox, thank you, Judge Wilcox, announced the jury's unanimous decision to acquit both defendants following more than seven hours of deliberation. The trial had to be moved from Beaver County to neighboring Washington County after activists endured threats of violence and intimidation from local authorities prompting a civil rights lawsuit. Yeah, the cops did threaten these guys too. They just let a guy of course they, did. they just let a guy who walked into the factory farm and took two piglets out without the consent of Smithfield walk out of the courtroom free. Um that's that's what he told reporters outside the courthouse in St. George, Utah. If it can happen happen in southern Utah, it can happen anywhere. That's awesome. Yes. Right? 
during his closing remarks to jurors, suing, okay, suing, like literally, uh, uh, no, Siung, Siung, uh, Siung, uh, see, again, I butchered the names, Wayne Siung, another hero, mm-hmm. all right, you got Picklestein and, and Siung, a former Northwestern law visiting professor, represented himself at trial, I don't actually want you to acquit us at legal, on a legal technicality. I want you to acquit us as a matter of conscience. There's a big difference between stealing and rescue. And if you help establish the right to rescue, he told the jury, companies will be a little more compassionate to creatures under their su- stewardship. Governments will be a little more be- open. What? Go ahead. You're fine. Oh, governments will be a little more open to animal cruelty complaints. And maybe just... Maybe a little pig like Lily won't have to starve to death on the floor of a factory farm. So um, these guys pointed out in a statement that a most likely character witness, Rick Pittman, testified in support of the defendants on Friday. Pittman is the owner of Norbist, a turkey farming company in Utah, in which uh, uh, Siung and Picklesheimer previously investigated and were charged for before striking up a friendship and annual Thanksgiving turkey rescue condition, uh, tradition. During cross-examination, Utah Assistant AG Janice Macanis Mac- uh, asked Pittman if, if uh, Siung's actions had caused him financial harm. He said, there's a difference between stealing a turkey and rescuing a turkey who's suffering. Well, the case had been criticized by legal scholars as unconstitutional and politically motivated, given Utah AG's uh, uh, Sean, Ray- uh, Sean Reyes's possible financial ties to Smithfield. So this almost sounds a little bit like what's hap- what happened to Donziger, where you've got the judge and the prosecutors in the pocket of Chevron that are being yeah. told by the company to prosecute and to keep this guy under wraps. So, quote, state and federal authorities have consistently shielded factory farms from transparency and accountability, said an attorney who's been involved in every successful effort to overturn agag statutes in the United States. Uh, that's a pretty powerful guy. In nearly two decades mm-hmm. of legal work, this case is one of the most egregious I've seen in terms of denying defendants' constitutional right to a rigorous defense. Mm-hmm. Although Siong and Picklesheimer documented dead and dying piglets in piles of feces and blood and claimed the two piglets they removed were injured, sick, and starving. Wilcox ruled in February that video of the rescue and any evidence of the condition of the animals is barred because it might arouse horror in the jury. Horror. Horror. Yeah. Um, that makes me think of Bar- Bar- Marlon Brando and Apocalypse now going, think of piles of little arms. I mean, that's that's literally what they're talking about. You know, companies will be a little more mm-hmm. compassionate now to creatures under their stewardship. Governments will be a little more open to animal cruelty complaints. And as the writer explained on Saturday, exciting previous reporting by The Intercept, the FBI in, tw- in August 2017 chased the piglets across state lines and raided, oh my goodness, and raided the sanctuary where they were living bringing with them veterinarians who sliced off a piece of Lizzie's ear to perform a DNA test and confirm that she was the property of Smithfield Foods. The animals were not removed from the sanctuary. Wait, 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 wait. Yes. Why is the, why is the intercept? How did the intercept get here? They, they report on this back in 2017. <clears throat> That's when they were actually doing okay. decent reporting. Like when Glenn was there. The FBI and- in August. And scale, well, they had already, well, why does the intercept? Why does the intercept always get FBI and CIA source material? Can we? Uh, um, it's real interesting. Um, 
They do a lot. Anyway, of they do a lot of FOIA requests. That's what they'd say. Now the animals uh-huh. were not removed from the sanctuary; still live there to this day. But they confirmed that that actually they actually were the animals that were taken, and that they were the property, meaning that they actually did walk in there and and quote unquote stole those animals, which is what they're being charged with, and now they've been acquitted. Prosecutors allege that the baby yeah. pigs, who were barely a week old when the activists removed them, were worth forty two dollars and twenty cents each, or eighty four forty in total to Smithfield. Yeah. Yeah. The U.S.-based pork producer is a wholly owned subsidiary, the Hong Kong-based pork, pork company WH Group, which reported $24 billion of revenue in 2019. I mean, this is this is around the same time that, like, I think Hormel was getting a ton of stuff happening to them, too. Um, but $24 like, billion. Dollar well, people company. were getting video of what was happening there, and it was pretty fucking terrible. Um, yeah. A $24 billion like, company prosecuting two guys... Animal activists over $84.40 worth of pigs. Mm-hmm. Okay, professor at yep. UC Hastings Law, who testified in favor of the activist, told The Intercept that Smithfield has an enormous amount of financial interests that are wrapped up in this. They have an enorm- enormous amount to lose if this trial becomes public, and they cannot afford, or maybe they think they cannot afford, to give an inch to these people. Pig rescue occurred during... Uh, an investigation to uncover whether Smithfield had unco- had followed through on its pledge to stop using two foot by seven foot gestation crates that make it impossible for pregnant pigs to turn around. Yeah, John Stewart talked about that a long time ago. Okay, Seung P- Picklesheimer and three others who pleaded out the case discovered rows uh, of pregnant pigs confined to such cages, despite the company's promise to swear off of them. Evidence from the probe has been used in a lawsuit against Smithfield for misleading consumers, and it sparked nationwide protests against Costco, one of Smithfield's major buyers. Animal rights activists also found a facility packed with farrowing crates, similar to gestation crates, but with just enough additional room to fit nursing piglets, where female pigs are moved when they're ready to give birth. Okay, The group found dead and rotting piglets inside the facility, as well as visibly ill and injured ones, like Lily and Lizzie. Gross. This is all, again, from The Intercept. So, mm-hmm. shout out to activists, <laughs> man. Um, I, I, that, that's a great story. Um, and again, we don't get too many good stories and positive things where you get the courts being good to, it's not really the court, but a jury ruling in favor to not prosecute or to literally like these guys could have been fined. They could have been sent to jail. There's criminal shit involved here. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I do have another, this is going to be a longer story and this is about housing the kids and, and started cutting this one and it just kept going and going and going and going. And I'm like, wow, this is, this is like, this is our vegetables. We're going to have to eat tonight. So, uh, I'm I'm telling yeah. you now, stick with us because this is a good one. But this is this is really important because this is how 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 activists are making the right to housing a reality. Like from waging nonviolence, and we like to certainly wage nonviolence. Um, blocking the street outside the court in Brooklyn to extend the eviction moratorium. People still owe money. Uh, shout out People again. Still to, owe money. Shout out again to Jesse Jet. Um, we play we played. What did we play tonight for the first time? There was a uh, one of the songs mm-hmm. that we we put up that we had not previously put up, and it's got Franco shouting at 
AOC and Cory Bush, people still owe money. So what's going on? Backed by faith communities, the housing justice movement is racking up wins against landlords and banks, profiting off of what should be a human right. So we're going to hear about this story about April Lewis. She's in a housing fight again. This time she's pushing to keep dozens of families from being put out of a Charlotte extended stay motel that's scheduled to be shut down in a matter of weeks. Such motels cost as much as $500 each week. Expensive each week. Yeah. Each week. Expensive compared to long-term housing, but many of these families are living paycheck to paycheck or on fixed incomes and have no other option. Why? Yep. Because they can't afford the move-in <clears throat> costs for an apartment. Landlords want upfront rent and utilities and a security deposit, and now they're making even more people pay for rental insurance. Now they want they want first and last and utility and and sometimes two and a half months rent just to just to move in. Others stay at the motel because they're shut out of traditional housing due to a past eviction or criminal record. Now, uh, I have a friend, a Facebook friend. Her name is Kate, and she is currently homeless. Um, and she's dealing with, and she's in Oceanside. I've been trying to help her, and uh, I have not, unfortunately, been able to do enough to help her. But it is a real problem, and it's one that is continuing to grow in this country, and one of the reasons why I wanted to talk about this. Some simply it's really can't. Sad. It's really sad. It's it's heartbreaking because she's <laughs> yep. It's she lost her husband. She lost her 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 pet, and then she lost her place to live. And now she's out on the street and completely like starting to lose it because of her mental state of of grief. And there's no relief. It's 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 really hard. So. Some simply can't find a suitable place to live in, in a time when rental vacancies are at historic lows, right? Because rents are jacked up, can't find a place you can afford, what are you going to do? The good news for the motel residents is that this is not Lewis's first fight. An organizer for Action North Carolina, Lewis coordinated cancel rent protests at the local courthouse in the early days of COVID pandemic, led tenants in chance of housing as human right at various government meetings, and organizers canvassing in phone banks, pulling together tenants to advocate for their rights. God's work. Current focus is calling out to corporate landlords, calling out corporate landlords like the one in Charlotte who was repeatedly cited for refusing to address rampant mold, vermin, and dangerous wiring. Really bugs me. In early September, yep. Lewis and other tenants joined with other organizations that, like Action North Carolina, are affiliated with Center for Popular Democracy, make an uninvited appearance at the Washington, D.C. meeting of a trade association of corporate landlords. Dozens of tenants took over a conference room, poured themselves glasses of the fancy lemon and orange-infused water, and chanted, Corporate landlord, you can't hide. We can see your greedy side. I love it. All right. We go everywhere, Lewis said. We not only go door to door, we do banner drops and disrupt official meetings. Just be there. Be loud so they can't ignore what's happening to these tenants. Lewis has fought for her own housing, too. That's always how it works. A single mom, she more than once had to scramble to keep from being evicted despite working two and sometimes three jobs. The rent kept going up, and so I had to be pretty crafty just so I could keep my daughter housed. When Lewis later began working with youth and families as a counselor, the challenges they shared with her kept coming back to housing far and away the top expense at most U.S. household households, right? And right now, again, with costs escalating everywhere, 
The tenants she works with are not alone. More than 10 million U.S. renters report being behind on their rent. That's an imminent risk of eviction. I know of three or four people who I've spoken to in the last week, people who we all know that are concerned and are housing unstable right now. 65% of those behind on their resident on, on their rent are also people of color. These Americans desperately need housing assistance, but unlike Medicaid or SNAP food stamps, federal housing programs are not an entitlement. Families and individuals may qualify for housing help, but they only get that assistance if there's supply available, and it's usually not available. Only one in four eligible persons are able to receive a federal housing subsidy, leaving over 8 million households eligible but unsupported. As grim as those numbers are, they may soon be getting worse. Because rent prices on average rose more than 16% during 2021 and went up more than 20% in some cities, which we also know. Orlando specifically, we know. That's had. Yep. A recent study by the U.S. GAO found that every $100 in average monthly rent increases is associated with a 9% increase in homelessness. So it's no surprise that by mid this year, homeless shelters were reporting a surge in people asking for help with wait lists doubling and tripling as a result. And then you've got corporate landlords and, of course, housing racism. So the U.S. is often referred to as having free market economic system, but housing in this country doesn't remotely resemble an unfettered market. Federal, state, and local governments have eagerly assumed roles as major players in the housing business. The problem is that the government's heavy hand in housing is usually placed on the scales on the side of the wealthy. As we probably know that over the past decade, corporations have taken advantage of significant ta tax breaks to dramatically increase their holdings of both multi-unit rental properties and residential homes. Institutional owners or corporations of, or LLCs now own the majority of all U.S. rental units and 80% plus of the properties with 25 or more units. I don't think that's much of a surprise. Even people that are individuals mm -hmm. put, put those buildings into LLCs or corporations. Yep. <clears throat> as, as Lewis and others familiar with U.S. rental homes can attest, this is a problem. Yes, I agree. Corporations are demonstrably more eager to evict and less responsive to, ma uh, to maintenance needs than similar landlords. And in struggle with out-of-state landlords that leave mold unaddressed, broken appliances, windows unrepaired, trash not picked up, and even fail to pay water and other services. And too often they can blame people living there, like saying they don't keep their homes clean. Corporate landlords should be regulated like banks. Why not? Which aren't, which banks aren't, regulated now but yeah i feel you um so u.s housing dysfunction is grounded in the long legacy of racist housing practices of course we're talking about during the early and mid mid 20th century the federal government used home ownership subsidies to benefit whites and exclude blacks while restrictive covenants prevented blacks from moving to the neighborhoods where mortgages were easier to obtain that's redlining with home ownership the top means for accumulating wealth in the u.s Generations of housing and income discrimination has left black home ownership rates and wealth 
far below those of their white counterparts. Housing racism is the core reason why U.S. white households have on average 10x the wealth of black households. And the trends continue today. The current scourge of absentee corporate landlords' speculative purchasing of homes is disproportionately visited on black and brown communities. And it's a trend reminiscent of corporate purchases made in those same communities during the Great Recession of 07 to 09, when during the recession, black household wealth, much of it dependent on home values, fell nearly 50%. And that all leads to grimly predictable outcomes. Great. Black families are more than twice as likely to be renters as white families, and among renters, black families are far more likely to be evicted than white renters, with black women and children the most likely of all to be thrown out of their home. Yeah, because mm-hmm. let's let's do that. Just monsters. Yep. Absolute monsters. Nearly one in five black or Hispanic children have experienced eviction by age 15. Yeah, it's fucking bullshit. Anyway. A lot of things in housing haven't changed since the Jim since the Jim Crow era. To address it, we have to address the racism. So what are we doing about this? So the good thing is is we've got people, activists like April Lewis, who have the public att- who have the public's attention. Polls show both a great deal of contemporary concern about housing. Well, because they mostly out of selfishness because they don't want to see homeless people on the side of the road, but also out of compassion for wanting to see people get off the street and get the home, get into homes and be safe and have privacy and so many other things that go along the shower and running water. Housing, commitment to remedying the problem, yep. right? A 2021 survey showed that two-thirds of Americans growing in metropolitan areas are extremely or very concerned about homelessness and the high cost of housing, ranking it as their top priority. Housing is the most critical component for a successful community. A lot of issues we're struggling with, like crime, are connected to people not being able to stay housed. Sure. At a more individual level, housing insecurity is associated with all manner of health crises from asthma and heart disease to violence and suicide. If you are not secure in your housing, your mental health is in jeopardy. And actually, we talked about my friend Kate. You're always stressing. You're always at level 10 because you're fighting for housing. I can tell you myself that me sitting here in a comfortable position in my housing, my thought patterns are way better than when I was struggling to stay housed. I also want to mention, you know, how sometimes folks like this, they get a storage locker because they don't have a place to keep their stuff. And then it's getting to and from the storage locker and being able to afford a cell phone and a storage locker so that you can at least afford to exist in this world. I mean, without ID and, and without, I mean, again, a lot of them don't even have any enough for a storage locker and to put their stuff, a place for my stuff, as the legend George Carlin famously had talked about. Again, this is... Mm-hmm. This is like I said, this is a little bit of a little bit of vegetables, but but we got uh, we're gonna get through this, and we got not not much more. But it should be no surprise that surveys show that three quarters of Americans agree with the tenants' chance in Charlotte and around the, the nation. Safe, secure housing should be considered a human right. Again, this sounds like the Medicare for all argument. Everybody agrees, but somehow it's not happening. Those Americans are not content mm-hmm. for that right to be an abstraction. The vast majority of people expressing support of housing. As a human right, also support expanded government programs to make that right a reality. Federal level, federal level housing 
Efforts include Ilhan Omar's Homes for All Act, which would devote $1 trillion to building 12 million new, permanently affordable public and social housing units. How much profit is there for developers in that? It would also... I doubt very much. Repeal the Faircloth Amendment, but... <clears throat> which in 1998 re responded to the, the, the deterioration of public housing by blocking new public housing construction. What? Yeah. The National Low-Income Housing Coalition is leading a housed campaign in the U.S. in the middle of housed um, to expand rental assistance to every eligible household and create a national housing st stabilization fund to provide emergency help. Meanwhile, meanwhile, there's a robust and successful activism going on at the state and local level. There is robust and successful activism going on at the state and local levels, which is great. Activists using tactics ranging from occupying vacant buildings to canvassing to pushing ballot initiatives have won commitments for expanded affordable housing support in cities like Minneapolis, Oakland, Philly, San Fran, Baltimore, Los Angeles. Community activists are engaged in current housing campaigns in Vegas and New York. Rent control advocacy is ongoing in California, Florida, Michigan, with a recent rent control victory in Minnesota. Right? San Francisco is now requiring landlords to recognize and meet with tenant associations or face mandated rent reduction. Activists in cities like Indianapolis are pursuing are persuading their local governments to follow the European example of directing public real estate and public funding to social housing. Hmm, amazing. Religious communities are engaged with the movement also. The Federal Housed Campaign is joined by Catholic Charities USA, the Union for, Re for Reform Judaism, and the National Leadership of the Episcopal and Methodist Churches. I wonder if they've invited any Muslim organizations. My guess would be probably not, but they should. Yeah, I agree. As for the Action North Carolina housing effort in Charlotte, <clears throat> it counts as a key ally, Saint, it counts as a key ally, St. Martin's Episcopal Church. We should call up Mac, Matt, Matthew Ho running for Senate in North Carolina, see if he's involved with these guys at all. Several hmm. homeless homeless people live on the, on the downtown Charlotte grounds of St. Martin's, and the congregation welcomes and supports them. After a group visit to the local eviction court and conversations with several of the Action North Carolina leaders, the congregation decided to focus on housing justice. We wanted to see how we could be of help before a family becomes evicted or someone becomes homeless, Mission Board President Kay Miller said. Great. Thank goodness. So St. Martin's parishioners have staffed a tenant crisis hotline and recruited pro bono attorneys to help families facing eviction. That's awesome. A new team has pulled together to do phone canvassing of tenants living in some of the worst corporate-owned housing in Charlotte. They're discussing the possibility of following other churches' leads and helping low-income homeowners pay off property tax bills and fines that often causes a family to lose a home, and even exploring how to help create more affordable housing units. I give credit to the people of St. Martin's for showing us how community and faith-based groups can really help the movement, Lewis said. I try to push faith groups into action, not just praying. They're definitely taking action. They're offering more than thoughts and prayers. And social not-for-profit housing is the last section that we're dealing with here. So, again, a common theme of activism 
right, is the need to move away from expectations that the private for-profit market will solve, solve our crisis. And again, I think a lot of the capitalist movement, quote-unquote, the people who don't have capital but are so gung-ho for capitalism, um, this is where they step in. So the big picker, picture and KGT, KYT, I don't remember. I can't, I can't, again, I butcher names. Has written in her book, Race for Profit, is it entrusting a human right to profit-seeking entities will, event, will inevitably lead to suffering. Satisfying basic human needs like the provision of shelter, medical treatment, water, or even education run counter to businesses' objective of maximizing return on investment or simply making money. One of the most pressing yep. questions has been how to secure the provision of safe, sound, affordable, and decent housing for everyone. The obstacles to that goal have always been businesses' bottom line. Right? So increasingly... Activists have been able to convince state and city governments that Taylor's right. The private housing market will never meet the needs of everyone in their communities. States like Rhode Island, Hawaii, and Colorado are investing in building government-run housing, as are communities like Montgomery, Montgomery County, Maryland. What? Yeah. Governments at all levels hold the power to solve the housing crisis. They can raise revenue for subsidized housing by taxing high-end housing and housing speculation. They can tightly regulate for-profit housing activity and exercise eminent domain, especially on vacant or distressed corporate properties. Governments can significantly increase the resources and power of public land banks to acquire property and transfer or develop it into affordable housing, pass Community Opportunities to Purchase Act, or COPA, uh, legislation, right, which gives them the first rights of land purchase on uh, to tenants and the community. It's interesting. So the community actually can buy back the land from the corporations if it's not being developed and then figure out what to do with it themselves. Governments can then subsidize okay. those organizations' development, right, and maintenance, and maintenance efforts via public housing finance agencies. But literally, like, the government can support all of this if we figure out how to do it. And navigate the paperwork. Housing activists' demands like these are often framed with the term social housing. Social housing is publicly owned by either the government or nonprofit organizations that respond to democratic control by residents. It's decommodified, protected from the profiteering of the private market, and affordable for, for the life of the building or unit with no expiration date. Social housing sees housing as human right, not as a commodity or wealth-building tool. Like public education, public safety, our justice system, and infrastructure like roads and sewers and water, social housing recognizes that a place to live is a good that is too important to be left dependent on whether a family has enough money to ensure a profit to a private landlord or bank. Wow, what a novel concept. April Lewis, yes. she helped advise... Center for Popular Democracy in its manifesto in support of social housing published in March of this year. In Minnesota and New York, activist pressure led to corporate-owned properties being converted to community ownership, while public dollars for affordable housing are being raised in San Francisco via taxes on high-end real estate. How interesting. COPA legislation is passed or is pending in multiple states and communities, including D.C. and Portland. Baltimore Community Advocacy successfully forced the creation of a housing trust fund. A North Dakota, Philly, 
and California now have public banks to fund social housing. We got to do something. One social housing approach enduring significant curb momentum is community land trusts, which have a legacy that traces back to Black-owned projects like the new communities that grew out of the Southern U.S. Civil Rights Movement. In, in a community land trust, the nonprofit trust retains ownership of the land while the resident purchases the house on it. The purchase cost is lowered due to the discount for not buying the land, and the purchase is often supported with subsidies. In addition for the reduced price and the subsidy, the resident's resale price is limited in order to make sure the home is permanently affordable. And there are now over 225 community land trusts in the United States with local governments supporting them by acquiring land and buildings from private ownership and transferring title to the trusts to develop and manage. Why the rationale behind all these campaigns is simple. Okay, so a housing organizer for the CPD says, we just need to priorities rent, prioritize renters the way we've been doing for landlords. If there's a will, if there's a will, there's definitely a way. Right? And, and again, an impressive history of housing activism supports her optimism. This is really cool because in nations like Finland and France and Singapore, they have far more affordable housing and far less homelessness than the United States. There are other models we can follow. The impressive social housing track record in those and other nations came about because of advocacy, including tenant and labor union campaigns in Sweden, grassroots organizing in Germany, for expropriating corporate landlord property, right? Activists occupying banks and homes in Spain, Spain, a broad socialist movement in Austria, Finland, Germany, South Africa, France, Netherlands, multiple countries. They've created legal rights to housing and followed up the pronouncements with the programs to ensure their enforcement. How about that? Like, housing is a legal right is actually a legal right in some countries around the world. Did you know that? Yep. Mm-hmm. Okay. In Scotland, for example which has enshrined a right to housing in its constitution and legislation. Homelessness is brief, rare, and a non-recurring phenomenon. Okay? <clears throat> the US even Glasgow. Even Glasgow. Glasgow. Okay. The U.S. <clears throat> has its own record of successful housing activism. Rent strikes, community organizing, led to rent control measures in 200-plus U.S. cities. Activism created the momentum for the Home Mortgage Disclosure Act in 1975, the Community Reinvestment Act in 1977, Dodd-Frank in 2010, right? St. Louis rent strike mm -hmm. in 1969, first and still largest public housing rent strike helped shape the Brook Amendment of 1969. What's the Brook Amendment? It capped public housing tenants rent and increased federal subsidies for housing. Pretty important. Like other U.S. housing activism, the St. Louis strike had deep connections to faith communities. The strike was led in part by United Church of Christ Minister Buck Jones and buttressed by broad support from the local religious congregations because they organize. They have the people. Mm -hmm. There's a shared theme among these movements. <clears throat> we can and must reclaim our housing system from those whose sole mission is to extract as much money as possible from people who need a roof over their heads to survive. It's a theme April Lewis keeps in mind as she fights alongside her fellow tenants. Our activism is radical, not violent, she said. You know, 
The violence is what's happening to these tenants, 100%. The bills keep coming, and they're increasing, but of course we know wages are not. And then she repeated what tenants across the nation, in public meetings, corporate events, and street protesters are saying. At the end of the day, the rent is too damn high. Guy actually ran for mayor of New is. York City on that. And we are through our vegetables. Woohoo! Okay. So, housing does need to be a human right. Um, we should make it illegal for hedge funds and uh, private equity to buy up to buy up all the housing like they're doing. But then again, hedge funds and private equity have bought up our Congress and the corporations too. So, <laughs> I don't know how we're going to do that. But mm. so there's a lot they, of um, I mean, positivity. We talked about it. We've talked about a ton of like tenant unions and stuff like that recently. I know me and Colin have. Um, I think there's there was a group, and I should know their names because uh, I think they're associated with Assange for some reason. I think they're in the UK. Um, where and you're loud. They. Um, I'm sorry. That's I, okay. I fixed it. I think that's your fault. I fixed you're, it. Does you? I fixed it. Um. So need to shit down anyway, housing direct direct derivatives. That's absolutely right. Yeah, go ahead, squirrel. Thank you. Um, that like that were like breaking into like unused housing and like giving it to like homeless. Like they were like vigilante like sort of thing, you know. Um, I'm sure somebody knows what I'm talking about. Um, I remember seeing stuff on Twitter with them, like, unlocking doors and stuff like that, um, you know, and saying that, like, housing was a right, you know? Absolutely. So, you know. Oh, Valerie, welcome. How are you? Gamer, how are you? Just checking out the chat, and I'm listening to you. Matt Luttrell, going to be... Checking out on podcasts. Uh, welcome back. Good to hear that you're doing that. Hope you're getting back to work and finding something. Uh, anything we can do to help and amplify support, Matt. Uh, he's He's got a, a GoFundMe or a, a support website. It's pinned to his Twitter. If, if you want, Matt, you can drop your Twitter in the in the chat and people can go to your your, your bio and, and check out the link. And he got fired and retaliated by Amazon for organizing in Kentucky. Good, good, good guy, and just wants to see his, his workplace safe and organized. So, and apparently he's got some new thing he's working on here. Labor Dow, founded, founded by Larry Williams. Um, that's interesting. That's again looking at Dow's are, as far as I know, having to do with crypto, but maybe, maybe not. Um, definitely interested in learning a little bit more about it. Yeah, need to shit down housing derivatives. That's right, E. Heller. No, shut down housing derivatives. Agreed. Yes, he's rolling. Uh, we're all rolling. Born Sinner, Cold World, Squatter's Rights, absolutely. What's up, Sinner? This is great. So good to see everybody. Okay, so that's that, That's like the first story, believe it or not. Um, holy shit, that took a while. All right, so we've got some other stuff here. So next, what's going on? We've got Sharon Zhang at Truth Out. So Sharon Zhang is an Indie Media Award honoree for one of the top writers. Truth Out for being one of the top outlets, which is why you see two Indie Media Award logos down there. But she put out a report, or she she's 
reporting on a report that was released. Thousands of federal officials have owned stock in companies they govern. And this is not just senators and congresspeople. What? Yes, mm. th that's correct. Thousands of federal okay. officials in the executive branch over the last two presidential administrations have disclosed trading stocks in companies that their agencies oversee, representing thousands of potential conflicts of interest and inve a new investigation finds. So again, a this new came, one. A new one. The Wall Street Journal analyzed over 31,000 financial disclosure forms dated between 2016 and 2021, which included information of over 315,000 trades in stocks, bonds, and funds by officials and their immediate families. These documents show that over 2,600 senior officials across 50 federal agencies have disclosed owning stock in companies that have lobbied the agency that they work in. This yep. represents more than one in five senior federal executive branch officials, the report found. Jeez. These trades represent many potential mm -hmm. conflicts of interest and exploit conflicts of interest that agency officials seem to have simply swept aside and waived the rules for, the report says. Well, these stock holdings reveal that not only do officials have personal financial interest in companies they're responsible for regulating, but also that they may be trading stocks at seemingly opportune times. Hmm, how surprising. Nearly one in three environmental protection agency officials have reported owning investments in companies lobbying the agency holding up to $2 million in shares in fossil fuel companies on average between 2016 and 2021. <clears throat> Donald Trump official Michael Molina, for example, is a, a, a senior advisor to the deputy EPA administrator, had owned oil and gas stocks that could have benefited from Trump's policies favoring fossil fuel companies. Hmm, could have, maybe. In another potential conflict of interest, FDA official Malcolm Bertoni, owned a number of stocks in food and drug companies that he said the agency gave him permission to own, despite these companies being on the agency's no-buy list. What? Oh, fuck. Yeah. And defense secretary officials collectively own between $1.2 and $3.4 million in defense contractors or defense companies on average in the studied years. This is fine. The timing of these trades is suspect, particularly uh, potentially suggesting insider trading. The report found that more than 60 officials had traded stocks in companies just before their agencies announced actions against them. One DOD official, Greg Zacharias, had bought stock in Lockheed Martin five times just before the Pentagon awarded it a new billion-dollar contract. Hmm... It's possible that many of these trades were legal, even if there are conflicts of interest. While officials aren't... Crazy. Yes. While officials aren't allowed to do work that could affect their personal finances, laws around trading are regularly unenforced, and the laws are often weak enough that officials can work around them. Many of these potentially conflicted trades clearly violate the spirit behind the law, which is to maintain the public's confidence in the integrity of the government, ethics lawyer the Wall Street Journal. The report comes at a time when government officials' ability to trade stocks is already under scrutiny. Dems and Republicans have been, quote-unquote, pushing for a ban on Congress's, Congress members' ability to trade stocks for months, and many of the officials whose stock trades were analyzed by the report may be banned from trading stocks under Democrats' latest bill introduced by Dem leaders late last month. 
We know that's not going to happen. Ethics experts say high-level lawmakers and officials should indeed be banned from trading stocks, not only to prevent conflict, potential conflicts of interest, but also to restore public trust in government agencies and decision-making. But advocates for a stock ban say that the issue of banning executive and judiciary branch officials from trading stocks should be brought to a separate vote rather than included in the same vote proposal for members of Congress, noting that Democratic leaders included a vast range of officials in their bill to include in order to garner opposition from Republicans and potentially doom its passage. Yeah, it's a poison pill. They intentionally lumped it and made it broad, so there's no way they get enough support to actually pass the thing. Thanks, Dems. Yep. The veneer of actually doing something. So that was a quickie. Um, not, yeah. not a terrible surprise. Rampant federal corruption happening across the board. Yay. Good to know. Um, I wanted to ask, there was um, a thing put out by Gray Zone, I think. Mm -hmm. I think it was Clarenberg, I wanted to say, about um, UK. Uh, like Yes. Yes, there was a there was a big leak in UK. They actually launched Grayzone UK with that story. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. Shout out to Grayzone. Um, Congratulations on UK. We're uh, Grayzone, also Indie Media Award honoree, Kit Clarenberg, Indie Media Award honoree. So um, yeah. definitely check them all out. KitClarenberg.substack.com or the Grayzone. Uh, it, it's grayzone.co.uk i believe or if you go to grayzone.com there's a link for the grayzone uk and check out his story on that for sure more exposing mm -hmm. corruption and that was about the fact that they knew about blowing up the crimea the they had plotted blowing up the crimea bridge beforehand yeah yeah okay uh, beastmaster yeah. rex yo yo welcome starting from the beginning so you'll get to this and uh we're gonna shout you out and say hi about an hour in so thank you so much for Joining the show, Kelly. I'm sure Congress will make all of this legal, like they do, like they did an insider trading for themselves. Exactly. Okay. Again, Kroger Albertsons merger. Exactly. Skyrocketing food prices. 100%. Ed, E. Heller. All right. So, next story. Julia Conley. Again, Julia. Good morning, Julia. Sorry. Good morning, that's, Julia. That's an inside. That's an inside thing. Full throttle, common dreams. Just got to go full throttle. All right. So this is one story that I've been particularly interested in. Okay. Again, a common dreams, India media award honoree. I can't say that enough. I created these things and not just me, but a bunch of us decided to create these things because these are the best outlets out there. And we, we want to shout them out and let people know that they are the best of the best. So shout out to Julia and common dreams. They go full throttle. Um, a huge deal. Major mm -hmm. rail union rejects the White House brokered contract proposal. Right? What? What? Yes! I don't think it's much of a surprise, but what? Thank God for these mm -hmm. guys. Uh-oh. Hey! You covered up my logo. All right. So, maintenance workers voted against the tentative agreement reached last month and said without a fair contract, a work stoppage could begin as early as November 19th. Unfortunately, that is after the election, and that is exactly what the Biden administration was hoping to achieve. But it's still good to hear. A union representing railroad maintenance and construction workers on Monday 
announced that its members have rejected the tentative agreement reached last month between unions and rail carriers, putting pressure on the carriers to offer a better deal to workers in order to avoid a nationwide strike in the coming weeks. Woohoo! Let's do this. Right? The result of this vote indicates that there's a lot of work to do to establish goodwill and improve the morale that has, be, that has been broken by the railroad executives and Wall Street hedge fund managers. They're reporting a turnout of almost 12,000 members. The BMWED, the Brotherhood of Maintenance of Way Employees Division, all right, BMWED, said that uh, about a little bit more than half had voted against ratifying the agreement and 5,100 had supported the deal, which was brokered last month with the help of the Biden administration's presidential emergency board. 99 ballots were returned blank or were voided due to user errors. Right, so the tentative agreement last month would include one additional paid day off and permit workers to take unpaid days to, re to receive medical care without being penalized by carrier strict attendance policies. Two key concessions from the companies, as railroad workers unions had expressed deep that deep dissatisfaction with attendance rules and a lack of any paid sick time. I mean, it's brutal. These guys get thirty-three days off a year. A year. I mean, they probably also express deep dish dissatisfaction, but you they, know. Well, I digress. Come on, don't get don't get me started on the pizza wars. Come on, you, are we talking about tomato soup wars? Are we talking about tomato yeah. tomato soup discredit? Yeah, it's a bread bowl, bro. It's, bread bowls are delicious. Bread bowls are delicious, but they're not pizza. It's got sausage. All right, cheese so, on the bottom. The deal would also include a 24% pay raise between 2020 and 2024 and would freeze workers' monthly contributions for their health care plans. Also good, both health care plans. Blah, got marble mouth tonight. After the tentative agreement was reached on September 15th, the railroad sector's unions agreed to not strike as workers across the industry voted on the deal. Well, now they have. Now, said the BMW Ed, uh, the nation's third largest rail, rail workers union and a division of the Teamsters on Monday, a work stoppage could begin as early as November 19th, depending on the upcoming votes by other unions. Now, our friend and labor notes journalist Jonah Furman uh, called the BMW ad vote a huge deal as a strike by the, union, by the union's members would shut down the national rail freight system by itself. The last nationwide railway shutdown took place in 1992 when a single union voted against a contract agreement and went on strike. Monday's agreement could potentially weigh the members of the Brotherhood of Locomotive Engineers and Trainmen, the BLAT, BLAT, right? Which is also a Teamsters affiliate. BLAT. Yeah, that sound, that, that's the sound that Reef just made, coughing. And, and, yep. and the sheet, metal, air, rail, and transportation workers also Transportation Division, the Smart TD. There are also two rail unions which have been negotiating a fair contract with carriers for several years and with, which will vote on the tentative deal within the coming weeks. This thing ain't over yet, tweeted Jack Gerard, and he's a rail worker. BMW Ed's rejection will probably embolden Smart and Blett members who were on the fence. BMW Ed rejection will probably embolden Smart and Blett that's yeah, a weird sentence. That is that is a little weird, but thank yeah. goodness for our unionized workers. Support Not as unions. much as, as 
What, what, who was it? Pickle Swizzle? Right. <laughs> who was it? Pickle Swine. I can't even remember now. Officer Picklestein? Pickle Sinkle. He's a, he's a hero, <laughs> man. He's a hero. I don't want to make fun of him, but Tony Cardwell, who's president of the BMW Ed, said in the statement that the vote signifies that despite U.S. President Joe Biden's positive outlook following the tentative agreement, which earned the White House praise from the corporate media last month for from the corporate media for helping the country avoid a strike and a major disruption to the economy and also potentially to the 2020 mid 2022 midterms. Rail workers continue to be discouraged and upset with working conditions and compensation and hold their pl- their employer in low regard. Again, they did not get a good deal. Joe Biden didn't get them a good deal. Joe Biden used this whole thing as a stunt. He put his arm around them and then said, we got him a good deal, even though they didn't think it was a good deal. But the rest of the country says so. So now when they go on strike, it's, we got him a good deal. What do you mean? What do you, what's your problem? Pieces of shit. Can't stand these bastards. Rail carriers, as Common Dreams reported last month, have seen their profits soar in recent years as workers have labored without a contract earning statement wage, stagnant wages. We all know that. Railroaders do not feel valued. The result of this vote indicates that there's a lot of work to do to establish goodwill and, and improve the morale that has been broken by the railroad executives, by the railroads, executives, and Wall Street hedge fund managers. We said that earlier. Membership voted in record numbers on this tentative agreement, exhibiting that they're paying close attention and are engaged in this process. Union members are concerned with the direction of their employees and the mismanagement and greed, uh, their employers and mismanagement and greed in which they've consistently implemented and are united in their resolve to improve their working conditions across the entire Class 1 rail network. Good. Because they, these are the people that make our stuff go. They can shut it down. But what's going to happen, well, our concern is that they'll use the cops to actually go to these people's houses and make them go to work. With the union rejecting the agreement, the BMW had entered a status quo period Monday with negotiators returning to the bargaining table with freight carriers. That status quo period will extend to five days after Congress reconvenes, which is currently set for November 14th which is why you've got the November 19th start date for the strike. Okay, that if an agreement is not reached by then, workers could resort to self-help or a strike on November 19th at the earliest. An internal poll taken by Smart TD after the tentative deal was reached showed that 78% of the members wanted the union to reject the agreement and ultimately let Congress decide the national rail contract. Oh, of course. No! Who do you yeah, think they work Congress. for? Who do you think they work for, guys? Not you. The vote announced Monday shows that BMW Ed members are fed up with the carrier's abusive work practices and are ready to demand more. Yeah, except letting Congress decide what you're going to get is not demanding more. Withholding your labor is demanding more. Man, that's that's just uh, you know the solidarity with the rail workers. Um, again, all the people that are making the decisions about these people's lives are sleeping in comfy beds and having their weekends free and taking nice, comfortable vacations. 
and they are not experiencing what these rail workers are. And if they had to live one month the way these guys did, they would change the complete laws. That's what really drives me crazy. What's your thoughts on that, Mr. Coffee Cough? You're muted. I was I was wondering what else drove you crazy. I know that drives you crazy. Lots of things. You know? Lots of things make me crazy. Like like, like well, federal I mean, corruption. Not hit rock. Federal corruption. I'm sure. Well, stop calling sure. it butt rock. Why you gotta call it butt rock? You gotta call it butt rock. Yeah, but that's um, like puddle of mud, stained. You know, yeah, puddle of mud. <laughs> I'm talking stained. Puddle of mud. Stained. Uh, what is Andrew Roquefort's Twitter? That's a good question. He's got two of them. He's got the Roquefort file, and then he's got another one. I gotta, I gotta look it up. Uh, I was messaging with him earlier. Do, 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 we'll follow the Roquefort files. So uh, we got, we got one more story um, tonight, and again, one it's about, more. it's about our water. God. Well. But oh, that's, okay. it's about right on time. It's a little after 11. So we're, we're about an hour in. Sure. We've got one more story to go. So let's do this. That's more than four. Uh, oh, Colin saying, honestly, they should strike sooner than that. I agree. But legally, I think that they would probably be able to be arrested for breaking whatever protocol. They've got to follow their, their own rules. I mean, it's so stupid, the whole thing. Um... Yeah, well, who's telling Kit? You're telling Kit what? Oh, dude, Colin, you're selling us out, bro. Come on, Don't sell us out. I told him I'd rather. Oh, there you go, Nug Life, Nug Life, comrade. That's right. Kit. <laughs> you know the car from Night Yeah, Rain. that's about right. At Nug Life, comrade with two G's. Nice. Shout out to to Andrew. Go follow him. He did a great job at the Assange protest out of Denver last week. Uh, okay, so we got last mm -hmm. story or last set of stories. There's actually two of this is a two-parter also. It's a quick two-parter. Aaron Brockovich. You probably can't even see that now that I'm looking at it. It looks a little small. But Aaron Brockovich and Suzanne Boothby, the Brockovich Report. So, Aaron, why are we still adding fluoride to the water? So, that's a good question. I, I don't know. I didn't even realize that I think we still were, but apparently we are. Yeah. So, teeth, right? There you go. <laughs> Look up. Mm -hmm. Those are some shiny, oh, yeah, pearly no, whites. Woo! So, again, Suzanne writes this, and I think she ghost writes it for Aaron because Aaron's got an amazing voice and she agrees with what she sees here. Let's face it, water fluoridation is nothing to smile about. She doesn't talk about fluoride as often as other water issues here because, frankly, there are bigger fish to fry when it comes to toxic substances. Toxic substances polluting our water, and we're going to get to more of that in a minute. But a little story over the weekend caught my eye, and I thought now would be a good time to review my position on the matter. Did you catch the headline? No. Town employee quietly offered quietly lowered fluoride water in in the water for years. What? Yeah, the opening line of this AP story reads: Residents of a small community in Vermont were blindsided last month by news that one official in their water department quietly lowered fluoride levels nearly four years ago, giving rise to worries about their children's dental health and transparent government and highlighting the enduring misinformation around water fluoridation. 
First of all, I applaud this water operator. His name is Kendall Chamberlain, and he is Richmond, Virginia's, uh, Richmond, Vermont's water and wastewater superintendent. He told the Water and Sewer Commission in his town that he reduced the fluoride level because of his concerns about changes to its sourcing and the recommended levels. My duty is to take the, the reasonable to take reasonable care and judgment for the protection of public health, safety, and the environment of my customers, he said, adding that to err on the side of caution is not a bad position to be in. Yes, that's how water operators should be looking at their job, as protectors of public health. Yes. Why would they not be? So she says, again, let me be clear about my position on fluoride. For years, I've said that I don't believe a public drinking water system should be used to distribute any substance for the purpose of achieving a medical result. It's just wrong. How can we possibly mm -hmm. control the dose for every American and get it right? I'm opposed to the continued policy and practice of drinking water fluoridation. I believe this harmful practice must be ended immediately. Public drinking water is a basic human right and its systematic use as a dispensary of a substance for medical purposes is deplorable. Interesting word to use. Yep. If we wanted to dose, if we really wanted to dose our water with vitamins, why not add vitamin C or D? To say that we're adding fluoride to the water as a public health intervention is just wild. You can watch me and Bob. I, I I I know I know I know I'm supposed to be more mature than this. Yes, but that fucking name sounds like it would go great on like particular websites. You know, maybe Bob like... Balcock, I guess. <laughs> I was right? gonna go Bocock. But... Yep. Well, you could go okay. with that one too. That's like what Joe Rogan has. Joe Rogan has one of those. Okay, that's her go-to partner in water investigations. So he's pretty, pretty powerful and important. Talking about this issue at a town hall meeting in Florida back in 2018. Bob is a water treatment professional, and he's been a licensed California grade five uh, water treatment operator since 1985. So he clearly knows what he's talking about. In the video, Bob makes a great point. Why do we work so hard to clean the water just to add something to it? It doesn't make sense. I support drinking water utility professionals who question this practice and work to make their community safe. We must continue to look at this practice and ask why after years and years and years of dental advancements, are we still relying on an artificial form of fluoride to help fight tooth decay? Wanna find out if your water has fluoride in it? The best way to find the fluoride level of your po local public water system is to contact your water utility provider. The US EPA requires that all community water systems provide each customer with an annual report on water quality, including the fluoride content. If you live in one of the states that participate in CDC's My Water Fluoride program, you can find information on the fluoridation systems of uh, fluoridation status of your water system online at My Water's Fluoride. What do you think? Fluoridation just sounds like what. If you wanted to turn everyone into like Florida man, you'd have to do that to the water. <laughs> you know, Florida. They literally sound Florida <laughs> fluoridation. Yeah, right. So, and making it Florida. That's what it's doing. Right. And the other half of this story, unfortunately, is 
kind of draconian and scary. And I think we've talked about PFAS and forever chemicals. I know that when a big report came out, Erin herself had done a an article about it, but it came out again that more than 57,000 U.S. sites are contaminated by these PFAS or toxic forever chemicals. Again, so what's going on with our water? It's being poisoned. Finding comes after a separate analysis showed that companies are exploiting a Trump-era loophole to avoid reporting PFAS pollution. So they're still not even reporting on it. And of course, there's our wonderful drinking fountain. The authors of a new study showing that tens of thousands of sites across the United States are believed to be contaminated by per and poly fluorocanil substances, often called forever chemicals, right? Mm -hmm. Warned that their findings are likely mm-hmm. likely vastly underestimate the prevalent prevalence of the chemicals. Why? Because they're used in so many products. Not to mention microplastics, which are now going through the blood brain barrier and all that fun stuff. Um, right. Scientists at Northeastern University. Out in women's breast milk, right? Mm-hmm. That kind of crap. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Microplastics. Yep. Um, yep. Scientists at Northeastern University led the study, which was published Wednesday in Environmental Science and Technology Letters, and identified over 57,000 sites where, where PFAS contamination is presumed. While it sounds scary that there are over 57,000 presumptive contamination sites, this is almost certainly a large underestimation. Oh, shit. Forever chemicals, of course, so named because they do not break down and instead remain in the environment and people's bodies for decades, are especially likely to pollute areas where firefighting foam is discharged, such as military bases and airports. The researchers used Northeastern's contamination site tracker developed by the university's PFAS project lab to validate more than 500 sites where the PFAS contamination was presumed to be. They also developed a presumptive contamination model to determine other sites where forever chemical pollution was very highly likely. That makes sense, right? More than a quarter of the sites not included by the Project Labs tracker were places that are not typically associated with PFAS, including restaurants, car washes, textile cleaners. In addition to substances used at industrial sites, PFAS are often found in Household items. Great. Out of the 503 known contamination sites, reads the study, 176, again, 35% were observed in the map, and another 37% were expected uh, by the presumptive model, but were not mapped due to data limitations, which, again, brings the total validation accuracy 72%, which is really scary. Okay, the researchers model identified almost 50,000 industrial facilities. Almost 10% of those are wastewater treatment plants. That's that's yep. bad. 3500 current mm-hmm. or former military sites and over 500 major airports as places where contamination is likely. PFAS exposure has been linked to several cancers, thyroid disease and other health problems, of course. Again, It's a large estimation. The scope of PFAS contamination is immense, 
and communities impacted by this contamination deserve swift regulatory action that stops ongoing and future uses of PFAS while cleaning up already existing contamination. That would be good. The study follows recent reports, again, showing that the EPA is likely underestimating the amount of PFAS contamination in U.S. drinking water, that so-called non-toxic products for children contain the substances, and that shelves at dollar stores are packed with items containing forever chemicals. As these chemicals are found to be harmful at lower and lower levels, it's critically important to identify sources of potential contamination and take steps to prevent to protect downstream communities who may be unwittingly exposed. And that's a PhD in the Environmental Working Group. And so this, this woman, uh, the, the group's vice president of media relations, noted that there are few federal limits on industrial discharges of these forever chemicals. Because why would there be, right? Yeah. In September... EWG released an analysis showing that at least five facilities owned by major U.S. companies, including 3M and Dow Chemical, are exploiting a regulatory loophole to avoid reporting the amount of forever chemical pollution their operations are causing. Thanks. Companies have been required since 2020 to report to the EPA the annual release of more than 100 pounds of PFAS, but... Former Republican President, of course, Donald Trump's administration put in place a loophole allowing them to not report if PFAS amounts are negligible, defined as less than 1% of total mixture. And who's even regulating but if, that but shit? If you, if, you, if you ask people to find 100 pounds of weed for the U.S. government, that's certainly possible. You know? Yeah. The exemption makes it possible for manufacturers to avoid uh, this, this reporting often by diluting their waste mixtures so the concentration of any single forever chemical remains below 1%. So now they're just putting a deadly toxic mixture of toxic chemicals together. As long as they're all below 1% each, we're good. Facilities can therefore avoid reporting even if they release one or a combination of PFAS in quantities significantly above the 100-pound threshold, so long as each forever chemical makes up less than 1% of the total mixture. The loophole could be contributing to the government's underestimation of the amount of PFAS contamination in the environment. Could be. Yeah, thanks. Maybe. Now, lady, federal regulations limiting discharges into the air and water are urgently needed to turn off the tap at the source. Okay. The EPA should move swiftly set regulations for the industries most likely to be dumping forever chemicals into the environment. State regulators should also act quickly to incorporate limits on the amount of forever chemicals that can be released into existing permits. Yes. I can't believe we even have to say this. Oh, man. Okay. So that was a little frustrating. We had some good activism stories. And we only had one labor story, which was at Reese's request this week, because we've been basically all labor all the time. God, I love them. Yeah, but it definitely has been. Um, so, you know. Yeah. We're good. See, yeah. hour 20. That was good on the stories. Um, yep. Reefer is a 12-year-old boy. Oh, come on, man. That'd be cool, Colin. 
That ain't right. I was laughing at the, uh, at the, uh, oh, Mr. Oh. Bocock. Well, okay. Maybe he is a 12 year old boy then. Um, yeah, a mannish boy, but yes. Yes, Crab, I don't want Florida in my water <clears throat> either, for sure. 100%. That's great. Oh. <clears throat> that's Keep that's like Florida man's stuff, like origin story. Keep Florida out of our water. Radioactive fluoride in the water. Okay. We got Florida, man. Warren, somehow I don't think that this is true, but I'm going to have to verify. Kit is short for Gertrude. Ah, makes sense. I thought that was Gert. <clears throat> I said Kithaniel. That's what yes. he's short for. Kittitini. <laughs> oh, oh, well, yep. yes. Kithany. Kitty. No, it's Kitty. Kithany. No, Kit is short for <gasps> Kithany. Kitty. <laughs> That's what Kit's short <laughs> for. <laughs> You know, you know what that, that story does remind me of? Oh, boy. You watch King of the Hill, right? You watch King of the Hill. Naples? Um, what? Who's the... um? Florida. Naples. Yes. Uh, yes? Huh? Yep. No, oh. not place. Um, oh, right. Yes, King of the Hill. The Hill family. Yes. Hank. Bobby? Yeah, who's, who's Bobby? the um, conspiracy... What? What is it? The... um. Not... <laughs> Giggity? Not um Boomhauer, but the other one. Giggity. No, that's Family Guy. Oh. Am I <laughs> the wrong? Quagmire of Family Guy. Oh, yeah, thinking... King of the Hill. Oh, okay. Go back. Uh, who went? Dale um, Gribble? Dale Gribble. The Gribble Dale, Report. Dale Gribble. Yeah. The, by the way, they... fluoride in the water. By the way, my... uh there is there is a hilarious, hilarious Twitter follow at the Gribble Report. That that literally has Dale Gribble. Pretty good. Dale Gribble as as its as its pick. Um, Dale Gribble. Oh no, Joe. Um, Joe, we're not freeing the nipple tonight. Nays Garden is already in bed. Not freeing the nipple. Yeah. What? Come. Yeah, yeah conspiracy oh, guy. Dale Gribble. There the we go. Oh. What? And yeah, we don't talk nipples here. Wrong channel. Going <laughs> thanking our volunteers again, Fred Edwards. And all and everybody, thank you to our patrons, our loyal patron supporters, most of whom are actually here tonight. Patreon.com slash IND Left News. Uh, we got a killer week. By the way, if you did not see Tara Reed's stream with Wyatt Reed and Vanessa Beely, definitely see that. I'm going to be putting clips out. As well as the Night of the Assange stream, uh, she did an interview with Maria Butna that most people did not see because of all the other hubbub that was going on, but that was also, that was also really good, and you should totally check that out. Tuesday night, we're going to be doing another American tradition with Jesse. Uh, I'm not sure what what the heck is sitting next to you, Reef. It looks like it, th that water thing looks like a person. It looks like no to the other side of you. No, the plastic with the water behind you. What is that behind you on the ground with an eight or what? What what is that? That Aquafina? Yes, it looked like a person. It looked like it's a, a face, bro. Water. That <laughs> the thing it was the thing it was laid out looked like a face. Okay. Anyway, um, well, I was totally distracted. Squirrel. Um, so, bruh, yeah. Well, Tuesday night American tradition. Wednesday night INN news. Thursday, not sure. Friday, um, we've got, of course, Reefer After Dark. And secret show. Shh, it's secret. Maybe one of these days it'll be on INN, um, but it's it's over Monday. on Extra Booyah right now. What? 
this upcoming Monday, we're going to have, uh, what was it, Jose Vega? And, yes, um, yes, tomorrow night. The uh, Jose and was with him. The, the dudes, out AOC. yeah, the dudes that yelled at AOC will be there the first hour, and then uh, Diane Sare or Sare or whatever she's running for Senate in New York. She's a Larushi, um, and and um, she's she was at that conference that was in the city this weekend, and okay. so she'll be on the second hour. So that that starts nine o'clock Eastern tomorrow night, or starting an hour earlier than okay. she normally does. It'll go about two hours. The first hour will be one interview. The second hour will be another. Um, yeah, and we'll we'll be back here and next nine Eastern. Nine Eastern. Eastern. Yeah, I'll be making the streams yeah. after this, nine p.m. Yeah. Um. So um, we'll be back here next week already. I mean, I can't believe it's already going to be a week next Sunday night. And look at look for the clips. We got the clips from last week out. This weekend, so those are all out, and then we'll be getting these up um, during this week. And I think that's about it. Of course, follow IndieNews.network. Go to IndependentLeft.media or IndieLeft.media, I-N-D-I-E, Left.media, and that will get you all the Linktree links. Uh, at the INN Linktree, you can also find the INN members and find all their links. We've got all of Reef's links are in the description. All the links to find us on every platform or to subscribe, support, wherever you can. Please tell your friends, tell your tell your neighbors, tell everybody because nobody else is telling anybody, I'll tell you right now. Uh, certainly Google's not helping us. But rockfin.com slash news. We are monetized on there and we are growing very quickly. We're at almost 2,500 subscriber followers on Rockfin. Love that guy. Love those guys. And it's ad-free. Again, if you're not YouTube Premium, and you hate the ads on YouTube, go to rockfin.com slash news. sign up, and you can watch all our, our stuff ad-free. And uh, yeah. for tonight, I'm going to say thank you, everyone, and keep questioning everybody's motivations. Keep listening to what little birds have to tell you, everyone. Good night, fam. I think I liked it better being blind When I couldn't read between the lines when I couldn't see the cracks in the structure that lay bare before me the whole time I think I liked it better back when I Suspended disbelief and swallowed pride I thought I knew the difference in the red from the blue But they both bleed us so dry They both bleed us so dry My favorite songs don't hit the same way I get to the end of a four-minute track And I'm only looking back thinking What did they actually say? So I try to...